0: And welcome to Thoughts from Meharry Head, the weekly podcast where I talk about, well, whatever happens to be bouncing around inside my head at the moment, but mostly focusing on constitutional issues and political decentralization. This is episode 36 of Thoughts from Meharry Head, and I appreciate you tuning in. This week, I'm going to tell you about a recent academic paper that obliterates conventional wisdom about nullification. Well, I'm really excited about this episode of Thoughts from Meharry Head because I get to share with you guys some news that, at least in the academic world, is considered blockbuster. In fact, it changes some of the conventional thinking on nullification. So before I get into the paper, let me give you just a a quick background on uh, the history of nullification and, and really what we're talking about here. In 1798, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison penned the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions, formally outlining for the first time the principles of nullification. They were responding to four laws collectively known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. The three acts dealing with aliens, and no, I'm not talking about the space kind. I'm talking about foreigners living in the United States. These acts expanded executive power far beyond its constitutional limits. The fourth law, known as the Sedition Act, basically made it illegal to criticize the federal government. And you don't need to be a lawyer to understand that that's a very clear violation of the First Amendment. So Jefferson and Madison wrote these resolutions in response. The Kentucky legislature passed Jefferson's resolutions, and a month later, Virginia followed suit approving Madison's work. Together, these resolutions established that the Alien and Sedition Acts violated the Constitution and made the case that the states had a duty to take action to block this usurpation of power. As Jefferson put it, where powers are assumed which have not been delegated, a nullification of the Act is the rightful remedy that every state has a natural right, in cases not within the Compact or the Constitution, to nullify of their own authority all assumptions of power by others within their limits. Madison put it a different way, writing that in the case of a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of other powers not granted by the said compact, again the Constitution, the states who are parties thereto have the right and are in duty bound to interpose for arresting the progress of evil. I talked more in depth about the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions in episode 8. I also wrote an article on the subject in my Constitution 101 series at michaelmeharry.com. I'll put links to both of those in the show notes, along with a couple of other articles that delve into the principles in more detail. But in a nutshell, just understand that Jefferson and Madison were asserting that the states have the authority and even a duty to resist unconstitutional federal actions. Now, of course, there are all kinds of superficial arguments against the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. You know, well, the Supreme Court said blah, blah, blah. Or then there's the favorite response from the likes of Rachel Maddow or Think Progress to call anyone who brings up nullification a neo-Confederate. But among the more serious academics, you will find three primary objections to the resolutions. First, they'll tell you that Jefferson and Madison made up their conception of the Union and the idea of nullification in 1798 for purely political reasons. In other words, it was a new concept not rooted in the ratification of the Constitution. Second, they'll say that Jefferson and Madison didn't really mean what they clearly said. They'll say that interposition only meant protesting or voting out the bums in Congress, not actually taking state action to resist unconstitutional acts. They will also bring up the fact that Madison later seemed to backtrack on nullification. I address this misnomer in depth in a booklet called Smashing Myths, Understanding Madison's Notes on Nullification, which you can buy at my website. Finally, they'll point out that no other state supported the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. This proves, so they say, that Jefferson and Madison's ideas were some kind of extremist position that everybody rejected. Now, interestingly, the primary academic arguments made against the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions all flow from a 1948 paper written by Adrian Koch and Harry Ammon. As Dr. Kevin Gutzman pointed out on the Mike Church show last week, there is substantial evidence that these two academics were writing a propaganda piece for President Harry Truman that was meant to end once and for all the debate in the Democratic Party concerning the intended structure of the United States political system. Subsequent papers have pretty well dismantled the first two objections. The principles Madison and Jefferson built their resolutions on were clearly articulated during the ratification process. And yes, Jefferson and Madison meant what they wrote. But this idea that no other state supported Kentucky and Virginia continues to stand. In fact, the Heritage Foundation makes this argument in its case against nullification. But a new paper by Wendell Bird that was published in the Winter 2015 issue of the Journal of the Early Republic blows this notion out of the water. Now, Bird sums up the accepted version of things this way. The conventional history of the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions contends that they were abject failures encountering opposition or hostility from all other states, which rejected them on the grounds that the resolutions and their view of the Constitution and of federal state relations were extreme or at least far out of the mainstream. But Byrd goes on and uses newspaper articles, state legislative journals, and other original sources to show that only the six New England states rejected the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions outright. Other states were split on the issue, and several southern states supported the principles. In fact, the Tennessee and Georgia state legislatures passed resolutions in support of Kentucky and Virginia the Georgia resolution is particularly significant because it affirms the idea of state interposition. Here's a section of that resolution. Quote, that to advise an approbation of those acts, the Alien and Sedition Acts, as some states seem to have done, would be to speak a language foreign to our hearts, but the committee hope that they will be repealed without the interposition of the state legislature. Unquote. So the Georgia Resolutions said, in essence, we hope all we have to do is pass these resolutions and we don't have to resort to interposition. As Gutsman put it in his interview with Mike Church, apparently then interposition doesn't mean passing resolutions. And that's what people always say, that interposition and nullification didn't really mean anything beyond protesting or maybe voting out people who supported the Alien and Sedition Acts. But clearly, it meant more than that. Georgia was hinting at taking further action to block the acts if the resolutions didn't have their desired effect. In fact, Jefferson discussed further action in a letter to Madison after the resolutions were passed. He even said he was willing to take things as far as secession. I never thought that every other state rejected the resolutions was a very good argument. Anyway, it doesn't disprove the soundness of Madison and Jefferson's reasoning. I always challenge people to actually refute the arguments they made. Nobody's ever been able to do that. But from an academic perspective, Byrd's paper is truly revolutionary. It completely disproves the conventional wisdom when it comes to other states' reactions to the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. It's also important to note that those New England states that were rabidly attacking the resolutions in 1798 and 1799, well, they embraced them fully about 10 years later to challenge Jefferson's blockade and then, again during the War of 1812, to fight federal conscription of troops. In fact, listen to what Daniel Webster of New Hampshire wrote during the War of 1812. The operation of measures thus unconstitutional and illegal ought to be prevented by a resort to other measures which are both constitutional and legal. It will be the solemn duty of the state governments to protect their own authority over their own militia and to interpose between their citizens and arbitrary power. These are among the objects for which state governments exist. You see, it wasn't Jefferson and Madison concocting some new conception of the Union in 1798 for political reasons. It was politicians in northern states that were playing that game when they rejected the resolutions. Again, Anybody who was paying attention during the ratification process knew that Madison and Jefferson based those resolutions on a conception of the Constitution that was clearly articulated during those state conventions. It was the Federalist Party that was striving to formulate a new conception of the Constitutional Compact, a national government with sweeping powers at the federal level. Byrd's research strengthens the case, but the resolutions stand on their own merit. Again, I challenge anybody to read the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions and refute their logic. Well, that's it for this episode of Thoughts from Meharry Head. We're another 10 minutes closer to freedom. I really appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor, spread the word. And make sure you head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast for free. You're welcome to send me any thoughts or ideas to michael.meharry at 10th Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.